Hello, everyone. How you doing? Welcome to another episode on Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. I am really excited for this conversation because, to be quite frank, I think I have a, a kindred spirit. I really have no idea where it's going to go. And this makes me really excited because uh, <laughs> the guest that we have here today um, dabbles in lots of things and brings a lot of good perspectives. And he's someone who uh, our paths have crossed here as a recent. And every time I, I read his stuff on LinkedIn or I'm part of some sort of learning on what schools could be or wherever else our paths cross, I always find that I'm, I'm gaining some new insider perspective from him or the group at large. And so today I'm here with John Nash. And John, for those that don't know who you are, who are you? What do you do? And what in the world do you got going on? Hey, thanks, Aaron. I'm really excited. And it, yeah, it's great. Uh, we we got to know each other just a couple of months ago. And, uh, and now it's been fast and furious. We can't <laughs> stop bumping into each other. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm John Nash. I'm an associate professor of educational leadership studies at the University of Kentucky. And that is my, my sort of day job. But uh, in the context of that role, I'm doing a few things uh, that are chiefly related to training leaders for educational organizations, mostly schools, but sometimes community organizations and elsewhere through our graduate programs. And uh, my research and development work centers on design thinking and thinking about ways in which human-centered design can be a lens for leaders to think about how to create positive change in, in their organizations. I love that. And I want to get into that topic yeah. of leadership. I actually was just talking with somebody about the challenges of, of leadership through the lens of she has this idea of like incomplete learning where, you know, we can, we can read, uh, we can watch, we can get sent to a course, but it's incomplete if we don't actually move into action. And, and so as you're thinking about the leadership and the work that you're doing with that, maybe we start there uh, since I've, I've segued there already, yeah. you know, what, what are some of the key things or, or ideas that come around leadership that you're focusing on? I don't want to say that maybe like it's a cut above from the others, but it's a topic that everyone says. It's a word we all say, um, you know, and yet I feel personally that not a whole lot has changed. It's either you have a really great leader in who you work with or <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not right. very good. And and yet here we are in these, especially in education, these same kind of like cycles where like the same issues happen again and again. And so what, what, what are you doing? What are you working on? I know it's not just you, it's a team, but when you're, when you're working through that leadership lens, you know, what are, what are some things that you're, you're, you're really focused on? Uh, well, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about is how in most, I'm thinking about how in most educational leadership preparation programs, um, and ours is in some ways no exception. We're all improving in how we set up experiences for leaders to really know what it's like to, to lead in the real world. But uh, in, in, in many typical programs, you, you accrue your credits, whether you're gonna be a school superintendent, a school principal, maybe you're gonna lead a nonprofit organization. You might have some field experiences, but mostly you graduate, you receive your credentials, you're benevolently kicked off the program and we tell you to go lead. And um, much of the curriculum is centered around those episodic uh, silos of information that you need to run an organization and lead in an organization. But what I think we tend to leave out are a set of tools that would benefit leaders if they could uh, put those into place when they become leaders in an organization that allow them to leverage the wisdom of the crowd around them. We, we tend to have them go out and become... Uh, enamored with the idea that they've got to figure everything out on their own. Mm. Um, and we, we talk about community and we talk about involving parents and how students can be a part of the process. Student agency is becoming uh, over the last 10 years, more and more important in the conversation, but nonetheless, there's mostly no real tools, specific tools that, 
a school principal, a school superintendent, a, a, a CEO of a nonprofit can put in place to figure out how to take all the all the, the mindware that is housed inside the people that love that organization and want it to succeed and get that out and, and use it to improve improve the school, improve the organization. And that's what design thinking can do. I think it can, um, it, I'm gonna go find the proper attribution for the quote, but they said the smartest person in the room is the room. Mm. But yep. if you can't figure out how to get that room together and what the, you know, the, the hive mind of the room, mm. then that's a challenge. So that's one thing that design thinking does, and it does it in that first sort of phase. If you're understanding a typical design thinking cycle is involving some need finding and empathy work that starts off to really understand people and what the unmet needs are that they have, and then deriving some distilled challenge that exists in, amongst them or the organization and then brainstorming to, to solve that challenge. But it's that first part, it's really, getting out from behind your desk, getting out there, talking to people and understanding what needs to be worked on instead of deciding on your own from your office, like, I think we should work on X or Y. But, and so that's the one chief thing I think that I've been thinking the value is when people say like, why should we learn this in this program? That's the, that's my first answer. No, I like that. And you brought up earlier that human centered design within that design thinking. And I know that's I love the the human centered design framework by by IDEO, and I know mm -hmm. I've used parts of that in in classrooms and and with teachers. And you really touch upon that that key piece there of like that human element of you know not just sitting in your office making decisions, but you know getting on the ground level and and networking and and figuring out what's going on. And while that seems so simple, you know. How do you address that? How do you talk through that, whether you're working with leaders or we're just talking just educators in general or even people outside of education? Because the more and more that I, I start to see this work and I, we're watching how quickly things are are moving and evolving in lots of different areas, like with, with AI and things of that nature, which is its own topic, but in some ways it's not. Yeah. This idea of constantly upskilling and, and living in this kind of state of mind of, not knowing all the things and you wake up and there's something new and then there's this how do you help people kind of i don't know live in that space uh or maybe like think through how to live in that space as well yeah. as in trying to lead at the same time because i'm sure that that, that that's no easy feat yeah it's a it's a trick and, and part of it is uh having to ex you expose people to it in practice and so you're right um you know, on the back of the napkin, as it were, it all makes sense. Like, and it's no one's going to disagree with the idea that, well, we should involve the voice of students more and we should have a student panel and we should, our teachers have a lot of great ideas, but I'm not sure how to get them up to the fore so we can improve things. And so, but yeah, that's a good idea. We should do that. And so once you can get a, a leader to sit through an experience where they become a design thinker and they apply it to a problem, um, they immediately see the value of it. And then they start to think about ways in which they can integrate it into their day-to-day -day work. So up until that point, it's like, it's a, just a novel idea that, but how in the world would I ever integrate this into my daily work, into the DNA of what we do at this school? Um, it's, it, it's unfathomable and then, but take them for a day or if they sit through, if they go into our doctoral program, they take my course. So we get 16 weeks of design thinking if, okay. you're, if you're at our university, but, um, just even in a in a uh, a simple exercise that I'll run with folks for that takes a couple of hours, the light starts to go on. You start to see, wow, um, if I'm able to ask a few simple questions and I ask them in the right way, I can really uncover what the needs are of the folks around here and how we can improve that. And a lot of times, the things that people want, what students would like in a school, what teachers would like to see as a part of their their day to day work. Um, the bar is pretty low to making people loyal to a, to your to your school to your program. Um, they just want to have a good experience, and so the all you have to do is ask. You have to find a. That's the thing, though. You have to go find out what it is they're interested in. And to do that, you have to talk to people, and you have to ask them more than just how are you doing. And hey, my door is always open, so if you need anything, come and see me. 
that right. will never nothing will improve it feels good to say that but if you can start to ask questions about you know tell me how you'd like to feel day to day as you come in here as a teacher you know they say well i want to feel like people have my back i want to feel like you have my back so well, tell me what that looks like well when you come by and you do your walkthroughs and you do this that and the other thing that really helps me a lot this other thing you know don't so what are some things we should turn up what should we turn down the and when you start to get those kinds of questions then you can start to understand what's what's needed and what can be worked on and that you'll be surprised how little it takes on your part as a leader to make the improvements we've done that kind of stuff with kids where we'll we had a project where we looked at how to totally blow up the bell schedule you know and they call that the day pattern for people who are yeah. not deep in schools the, the fancy term for the bell schedule is the day pattern and so we blow up the day pattern and we let students redesign that and in the process to talking students about what their day is like and what they think about school and how it fits into their lives we learn all these other little things like how the lunch sucks and how we can't do this other little thing and when the leaders find these things out, which seem like impossible things, kids would never raise these matters and they you can fix them with the snap of a finger. And then you can, so it's just this, it's really interesting what happens when you start to say, I'm gonna open up my ears and eyes and let me hear what people need and want. And because we're all, if you're an educator these days in 2023, and you've come out of a program in the last five, 10, even 15 years, you're very good at curriculum. You're very good at teaching and learning. You probably know pedagogy really well, and you should, and that's great. But we've, we've kitted ourselves into thinking that's all we need to have a great school. Sure, we talk about culture and things, but I think there's this, this other level of being very human-centered that is different now in the last you know, five, 10 years that we're really starting to think about. No, I'm really glad you brought that up. And I think I've seen that a lot. I mean, not just me, but you could easily, I would say post COVID, we've seen this, the the, the numbers are, are pretty drastic. And maybe that's a little over dramatic there a little bit. But I know in our state, we're really taking a look at like chronic absenteeism, like since COVID mm -hmm. has gone away, absenteeism is still incredibly high. Um, you know, engagements and just typical behavior is 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 not the same and maybe i think a lot of those things were always there i just think now more than ever people are just standing up to it and and kids will respond the way kids do and you know sometimes adults aren't much better so as you're working through that you know i i love what you said coming back to that human piece and you're you're using design thinking in the to these leadership programs which i'm really really intrigued by because I see it typically in the world I live in, used in classrooms. It's a way to create engagement, to get student voice and choice and gain them to think in new ways. So you see the design thinking frameworks and all the different forms that are out there. Yeah. And you're using it in a leadership program. And I don't know how long you've done it, so you can correct me, but like, are you seeing the like the impact or leaders then going out into buildings or wherever their next steps are beyond your program. And then using that, like as part of their, I don't want to say culture, but part of their structures that you talk about blowing up the bell schedule, then are people actually going through and actually truly redesigning the school day or, or like, cause there's that rub, right? There's that friction yes. of here's the system itself. And that's K-12 yeah. or maybe K-16, which it, it just grinds to a halt. And then there's people that have these ideas and, as much as we want to make change, sometimes it's really, really hard. It um, is hard. And so that's a great question. Are they going out and doing kind of, you know, my air quotes for the people out in the radio, <laughs> uh, are they doing, you know, uh, blowing up things, making project work of this? And um, they may be, but that's, and admittedly, that's hard to track. But sure, what sure. I do, what I do see and hear back from is that, uh, and this is, I've been posting about this recently on LinkedIn about once a week, talking about design thinking mindsets. What I think they get, they get a set of tools. They learn how to interview empathetically. They learn how to synthesize this data. They learn how to brainstorm and prototype uh, and things like that. But what they get out of this is a, a more of an open mind, which is these mindsets. Being human-centered is a mindset. Um, uh, radical collaboration this is actually the big one that we push. This means that you are involving people that are normally never involved in the conversation about the policies and practices and goings on mm -hmm. of the organization. And in schools, that chiefly happens to be students. I mean, the, the, and so if you're human centered, you're keeping the people that are most affected by what you do as close to you as possible.
possible as partners in your uh, in your work. Uh, but that also includes my favorite example is Buddy Berry, the superintendent of Eminence Independent School District in Kentucky, who takes radical collaboration to the point of his instructional cabinet not only includes associate superintendents, but also includes janitorial, the lunch people, uh, the bus drivers, because they see kids in legitimate, uh, authentic ways that uh, educators don't in the day-to-day -day goings on of a school. So their insights are very important in making that school great and that school district great. Um, and then show, don't tell, keep, you know, showing things instead of telling people. Um, these are the mindsets that students that are experience our work leave with. And so then the leaders are doing that. The other thing I'll add is that um, I come to this idea of leaders being design thinkers I have to give credit where credit's due. And it's when I was at Iowa State University <laughs> in Ames and working with Scott McLeod, who's at the University oh, of Colorado yeah. Denver now. <laughs> and uh, he and I uh, were to working together. He was the director of CASEL, the Center for Advanced Study of Technology Leadership and Education. And CASEL's mantra for all the work that's been done to get good integration of technology uh, into education from the, the students using computers, teachers using computers, uh, in, uh, smart pedagogical integration, it all falls down if the leaders don't get it. And so the mantra at Castle was, if the leaders don't get it, nobody will. And I said, well, yes, <laughs> that does make sense. Because if you look at the way design thinking has evolved since say even 2000 when so before the d school and when audio was still really a, a kind of a product development company um, but then we start to see ideo.org and we're seeing design thinking applied to social problems or issues of challenges in the developing world and then we start to see it fall in through a k-12 lab and now we're saying well shouldn't teachers be design thinkers shouldn't learners be design thinkers and they said that's fine that's good too so now we've gotten out in those realms but like at castle um, no leaders were really thinking about design thinking and if we wanted to see change organizationally because so much has been written about the episodic work of great teachers doing this, but how do you get scale right you get scale when superintendents when school boards when even just even principals can become the design thinkers use this lens like we've been talking about then i think so seeing that gap i tried to seize upon that and that's what i've been doing the last 10 or so years that's awesome it's I love it. I love how you're framing it through the mindsets and the tools to give them to be able to go back or not go back, but to continue to move forward with those to be able to make those changes or or lead in this type of thinking. Uh, because you're right, uh, it's 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 it is interesting. As you were talking, I was thinking through as you're talking through all the different ways which design thinking has kind of manifested itself in all these different arenas, and. I'm thinking through my own design thinking practices and things I've done and participate in very often leaders are not part of that conversation. So as much as we need that radical collaboration as you're talking about, there's almost this inverse where we do need leaders to bring more voices in than ever before. It's almost the inverse of here's this type of thinking or frameworks of tools and mindsets. And we've left the leaders out of that conversation right. unintentionally as well. So it's, 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 I don't know, my little yeah. epiphany here. And uh, yeah, I was I was talking to I think he's a mutual friend of ours, um, Ian Kitajima in mm. uh, in Hawaii, and uh, he he does a design thinking boot camp maybe quarterly for free for leaders uh, mm. in in Hawaii, and sometimes they're uh, corporate leaders, sometimes they're other folks, because he he knows exactly what you just said is that there's no the leaders seem to have been left out, so he he just gives away that knowledge for free and. And he says the same sort of thing. He notices that once they start to see it in practice, once they play on a team together and they put these diverse teams, they work on a challenge for, say, a, you know, a long day or a weekend, they leave going, oh, now I see so many more opportunities inside my organization where I can start to make improvements. I thought I was innovative before, but now I'm actually creative and I can start to think about things in a different way. Yeah, that's awesome. And I also have to like, my other aha I had with you was I had no idea we had a mutual connection through Scott McLeod. Uh, so that's, 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 that's oh, great. Yeah. I, I know Scott and uh, that's so funny. So I learned something new every time, every time yeah. I have a podcast, you know, and so speaking of Scott, so there's another Scott that I wanted to bring up because in one of your recent LinkedIn posts, you were talking and talking about mindsets, but one of the 
things that you were writing about was the prototyping mindset. Mm -hmm. um, and there's an author, Scott uh, Whithoft, who has a book, this is a prototype. And one of the quotes that I really loved, um, I had him on the on the show a while back, and I, I'm just curious on on your thoughts or how you maybe think through this uh, with leaders is, he said there's a tension between a prototype as a question and a prototype as a statement. So I'm thinking through this kind of leadership lens of this, where when I, at the time of that interview, I was thinking more students and we make and we iterate and we understand failure and process. And kind of the same things with leaders, but a little bit different too of how do you create the conditions to allow yourself as a leader, um, as well as your staff and, you know, if it's a school, mm -hmm. students, to, to have that space or that, I use the word permission a lot, to think of prototyping as a question versus a statement, because I feel like yeah. there's so much pressure. We got to have test scores. We got to have this data. We got to do this. Every minute needs to be accounted for because everything's under the gun. There's this real... There's this real urgency that's that's being felt in education right now. And so if you are a leader and you are thinking design thinking, you know, how are you helping them have conversations around that, um, if at all? I think I think that uh, the prototypes should be questions. I think how do you do that? Well, one word, curiosity. It's easier said than done. But I think if leaders can stay genuinely curious, get out of their own way stop thinking that they've got to know what to do and be very curious throughout so we've got to get testing done we've got to get through the end of the year we've got assessments coming up okay we have to do those so those those are constraints that we'll have to work in with and around with but that doesn't mean that curiosity has to stop and that you know we can continue to ask questions the nice thing about prototypes also i think may, it might be a misnomer amongst people that when you create a prototype you're putting it out there for for revision. It's actually a stealthy, it's actually a stealthy empathetic interview with the people you're talking to. Because what you're doing is you're saying, hey, how 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 do you like this? Does this work? Mm. What does this look like to you? And actually, you don't really actually care what they think of the prototype. You care what they say and think and react about the prototype, because that tells you more about how you can serve them better. Mm. And so we're, I'm always talking about with my students how, um, and I've used the term need finding, I use that a lot, So because people have unmet needs, and when you can un discover their unmet needs and meet them, then you tend to surprise and delight them, and then they become loyal to the institution and to you, and they want to work together to improve the organization. So um, everything is actually need finding. So it's um, ultimately you're starting to ask people like, well, what is what's going on? How can we improve things? Okay, we prototype a little bit. Now we show them the prototype. That's more need finding because you're trying to understand how well this works. And this just iterates and iterates. And so it comes down to a big question of curiosity, I think. I think if you can remain curious uh, and be thoughtful and listen, then you can create a uh, uh, an, a culture of belonging. People will feel less uh, reticent. They'll be more likely to say what they think and feel. And this is where innovation comes from. It's from the sort of the, as it were, the shop floor, as we used to say in the old days. And so when you can let teachers, let aides, let uh, staff feel like it's safe for them to give their feedback and ideas on how things could be improved, and you're genuinely curious about it, then you set up a, a, a culture where Everybody feels like they belong. Everybody can sh send their ideas up. If you're in a place where you think you have the filter and you know what's best, those ideas may sound good. But you know, listen, you can you'll burn your last bridge. People can tell when you don't really care. Right. You can act like you care, but they can tell. Uh, and so I think that that's the key is then take that forward. You know, so as you're talking through this, it re it, it it's triggered something that I know I've caught myself saying um, in conversations in education circles before. And I'm curious on your thoughts on whether you agree, disagree, or whatever, because I don't know that I'm necessarily right. But sometimes I feel like districts or schools or organizations, I can't speak for the business sector because I don't live in that space. But right. like when we say leader, I feel like sometimes there are leaders that get judged and are cast and seen in a poor light. They're not a good leader, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And there's times where I have this thoughts and it doesn't always like stick all the time, but I feel like buildings or districts need like 
two types of leader, like a leader and a manager. Like there are people who are in I'm gonna administrative positions, and we'll call them leaders because they're leader by title. That I don't believe are good leaders in terms of the things that we're talking about here today. However, sure. they are phenomenal managers. They keep things going, the books yes. clean, they the structures, the templates, the layouts. And I've also seen the flip side of some people who are phenomenal leaders that people love and welcome. But on the back end, maybe like the managerial part of the job, they are absolutely terrible right. at. And right. not that anybody, I'm not downplaying admin because it's a it's a tough job. Anything is every job in education is tough. But what's your position on that? Do you see it as like all encompassing? Is there a difference when we talk leadership and I'm thinking it through the education space? How do you think through that? Um, I mean, I yeah. know it's a kind of whole gamut of a lot of stuff I just threw at you here, but it's 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 but it's interesting because I'm thinking through this design thinking and I have people in my head and I'm like, man, some of these people would eat this up. And then there's others. I'm like, there's no, there's no way they would even consider this thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a that that latter thought is 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 a real thing. And I know in my a book I wrote a couple of years ago, I put in a, a stoplight protocol for schools to decide if they're even ready to engage in design thinking. And so that's that's important. But to your point, and the sort of thought experiment about sort of thinking through and, and splitting leadership around skills, I think I like that idea a little bit, I think. And you're right, Aaron, I think we need to also laud those that can keep the trains running on time and just because they're not a super inspirational person that's going to get the team going that's not we they should be put on a pedestal just as much as the inspirational cultural leader should and then they should hopefully be a, have a meeting of minds between them but um yeah not everybody's cut out for that um I'm, I'm not the greatest at keeping the trains running on time. I try, <laughs> but, um, and I'm willing to admit that. And if I can find a great partner to do that, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I know when I, when I was still in the classroom, I remember one year, it doesn't matter all the details, but I got to teach one, one class with another teacher that was normally an eighth grade teacher. And for one year, just through some logistics, she taught one section mm -hmm. of sixth grade social studies. And it was one of my favorite years because I was this, crazy out-of-the-box thinker like I would come up with these ideas but she necessarily didn't have that but what she was really amazing at was taking an idea and making it realistic like where it could actually like I be see. deployed with people or in our case kit like kids could actually right. wrap their head around whatever the 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 coffee guy was 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 you know going on and on about and it was a perfect co-collaboration of some really wonderful learning experiences not only for the students but for ourselves because nice. uh, I could kind of feed her and yet she could kind of bring me back down and it was mm -hmm. just it was so great and I just keep thinking through like man just to be able to have that like awareness of skills and attributes and mm -hmm. mindsets and then how do you counterpart with others and you know it's it's it seems so like utopian duh but man it's really hard to uh together yeah yeah it is that sounds then that's that's a great mesh of things although for a second there it sounded like the skills that she brought not to diminish them whatsoever but it's almost like she was your chat gpt before there was chat <laughs> <Yeah>. gpt <laughs> right right exactly yeah <laughs> you know that is it's a it's actually a perfect segue because i was going to ask you you know as we were talking about navigating this this these, these spaces, this unknown and, you know, not being comfortable in it, but being willing to accept we don't know all the things is you're working with leaders, you know, chat GPT and AI is, I mean, you can't read anything now without it. And I feed that, 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 that monster as well. Yeah. What are the questions that the leaders that you're working with are having? Are you guys having conversations around that? I mean, I, right now there's no perfect black and white answers to any of this, but I'm thinking through that design thinking process. How are you guys mm -hmm. working through some of those challenges? Because I think we're in a, although at the time of this recording, as one year is wrapping up, one school year is wrapping up, I should say right. here in, in May, yes. and you're getting ready for the fall, which gosh, who knows what things will look like, but you still have to get your ducks in a row. You know, what are, what, what are the conversations? What are things people chewing on? They run the gamut. And it makes me think of uh, a piece that was uh, written just a couple of days ago, published in the Chronicle of Higher Ed uh, by a student. Uh, the title of the piece is, I'm a student, 
you have no idea how much we're using chat GPT. Mm. And the first uh, paragraph is instructive. And let me read it to you. Look at any student academic integrity policy and you'll find the same message. Submit work that reflects your own thinking or face discipline. A year ago, this was the most common sense rule on earth. Today, it's laughably naive. Mm. Wow. And, and so there's, that summarizes right now where all the heads are at. And so you've got crazy people like me who are using it nearly daily and have asked their doctoral advisees to use it with me as a thinking tool as they prepare dissertation arguments to um, students who are in our program who when or posed that offer go, I, I'm not gonna touch that, that's cheating. And so it's uh, put out a, an opportunity for a conversation about what constitutes work, what constitutes tools, what constitutes your own thought, what is creativity, um, and a lot of ethical questions. I was just having a conversation with a colleague a couple of nights ago about this, and then just what is happening to the data that we put up in there? And uh, if, we're, if we're having student work be graded, or uh, let me rephrase that, if we are being aided by a large language model to grade student work, that student work has now been fed into their cloud. So OpenAI has that now. Um, is that used to then make better answers through OpenAI? The answer is yes. Um, right. And so then how do we feel about that? So th there's no question that's happening. It's more of the ethical question, how do we feel about that? <laughs> right. Um, and, and it's also brought to bear a whole host of conversations around what does it mean to be have academic integrity? Um, what does it mean to use tools? So nobody was complaining about the use of Grammarly. In fact, we were all insisting, I'm insisting my <laughs> students use a paid version of Grammarly when they get to their dissertation phase because I don't want to do that work. I do other work, I do the thinking right. work, right? And sure, no problem, do that. But that's AI, that's, that's changing their writing, you know? And so uh, is that bad? There was a fantastic uh, webinar right at the beginning of all this, right in February, maybe you saw it, it was the, at the Frankfurt International School, mm. was it? I think um, with some high school students talking about this. And one high school student was saying, you know, I use Grammarly and when it corrects my sentence structure, when it corrects my grammar, um, I become a better writer. I learned from that. And now I, hopefully I may subject the, my pieces and it won't catch that mistake in the future. And so I'm, I'm learning from that. So there's also questions of, you know, what are the benefits of the AI and is it a, is it a tool that we can use to think about improving what we do? That's the stance I tend to take, but I am concerned. I have, I'm not without concern. I mean, I think the ethical questions are fair. Um, I, I don't want to take it so big to say, but I worry about state actors. I mean, what are countries going to do with large right. language models and uh, around the political climate we have and uh, globally and uh, nationally? I think so. And what I always like to say at the end of that sort of diatribe is all of this conversation and all of this hand wringing and all of this opportunity uh, is based upon tools that are in public beta. They're, they're not even real yet. Right, they're not even right. products. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, I just it's so funny as you say that, like literally like just 10 minutes before we jumped on, I, I was looking at my chat GPT account and I got the access to the, the new beta where it can now you search on online now with the web browsing. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, and I think that opened up to everybody who is, a plus paid user or whatever is rolling out this week to all. And I'm now I'm like, Oh my gosh, like here I am looking at some different types of workshops and things I've shared. And I'm like this, I mean, every time I go to teach some learning, mm -hmm. you basically not starting from scratch, but the things just keep changing so fast. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it was, as you were talking, it, it reminds me of a workshop I just ran last week, which then connects back to this, this human pedagogy, this human centered design thinking. It was, there was a, a, a gentleman on the call that was also a professor. And he was saying they're running into a bigger issue around this idea of AI that is being discussed as plagiarism cheating. But actually what it is, is it's, it's, it's breaking down the trust and the relations between professors and students. So what's happening is that professors are accusing 
students of cheating. Mm-hmm. And we know not all those applications are reliable. Or I shouldn't say, I shouldn't assume that people no, know, awful. but they're, they're, they're not very successful. No. And not. so these kids are getting accused of cheating and some are claiming they haven't. And, you know, you have this. So now there's this distrust forming. The professors don't trust mm-hmm. the kids and the kids don't trust the professors. And I can see this happening in a K-12 space, especially high school really yeah. fast too. And he's like, so now we've got a bigger issue. The the thing that matters the most for education and learning is relationships. And yes, now we are, we're jumping the gun and making accusations both ways. And now it's leading into something much more important than cheating or plagiarism and so i think that and i i cannot get that thought out of my head as we think about the ethics we think about all this stuff but to also like take a second to breathe to realize like like you said these tools are beta not even real yet but yet people are and i think there's something really fascinating that i don't know like i don't i don't know what the answer is it's not going yes to the greatest things ever it's also not blocking everything but it's also like making sure that we're you know i guess we think critically of the tool and not the people and i think that is getting lost in this rapid race of trying to navigate it all in that example it is getting lost and i'm going to go out on a limb and uh say something that won't please the teachers and professors that are acting as you describe them which is this is all on them all of it is on them and it, because the presence of these large language models, the presence of chat GTP and the, its ability to write a five paragraph essay in 30 seconds is uh, the hand wringing that is occurring because that can happen is not because students are going to cheat. It's because there's an inconvenient truth that this means that you've got to up your game and really teach. Mm-hmm. You've got to teach. Uh, critical thinking, you got to teach dialogue, you have to now come up with assessments that are not predicated on writing a five paragraph essay or whatever the equivalent is in your discipline. And that's, that's uncomfortable for a lot of teachers and professors, very uncomfortable. Um, And so to throw it back on them and say, well, I'm sorry, but this is your fault, you, you need to be a better teacher. That's, that's not a nice thing to say. But it's, it's, this is, I'm sorry, this is the way it is now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's forcing us to look at ourselves in the mirror and uh, take a look at that. And I was, I had Gary Steger on and he's the one that mm-hmm. has no problem saying whatever he wants to say. And that's what I always appreciate about him. But when I was talking with him, he said, if an algorithm can replace a teacher, it should. And if an algorithm can answer the, the, the homework assignment, it should. The idea of being just what you said, like, what are we going to do? We need to take a look at it. And that's where I've been trying to be proactive in the in the understanding of the chat GPT and all the tools in the education, but really I see it as an exciting opportunity, even though it's incredibly also daunting for a lot of people. It gets us going back and really looking at how we're teaching and what the learning looks like. And are we assessing for learning and all these things we have talked about, it seems like forever and a day, and yet things haven't really changed all that much. And now here we are we don't have a choice now um, right. because the tools will do the low level tasks. So how do we then use that to free up, to get to these deeper levels of thought? That's that right. to me is the, the the exciting opportunity if we're willing to have our mindset think that way. Um, but I mean, that's not, not easy for everybody. No, it's not, but I'm, I, I agree with you. And I'm excited by the prospect of doing one of two things in my classes, which is either um, thinking about how to be thoughtful uh, in integrating large language models that to help advance um, the ability of students to uh, critically examine a problem and to think it through, but still their own work the entire right. way. Uh, or, and that's one, then, or not using them at all um, and having a course that is completely AI proof. And so, and so my, my dissertation seminar class is the first one. And the second one is my design thinking class where um, no amount of AI is going to get them past the public demonstration of learning that they have to do. And they have to do four of them. And there's, you know, so, yeah. uh, and that class teaches uh, independent thinking, critical thinking, teamwork, uh, transdisciplinary approaches, um, that you can't get from writing out something in English and turning it in. Right. So that's what I'm excited about is thinking about the ways we can do that. 
Yeah, but I think when you when you put the focus on the on the process over the product, not that you don't want a good product at the end, you know, but in your cast with that design thinking, you know, I still got to be able to stand up and talk about it, display it, show how it works. And, the, yeah. you know, if it doesn't, I don't really care how you get there. I mean, I do a little bit. I say that kind of jokingly, but like you right. still got to be able to defend and explain the work. And that's what we've that's been doing it. with a lot of elementary kids is like the the learning journey is more important than the end piece because some of you, your mom and dad can go buy you every single supply under the sun. They can look pretty and you learn nothing. And some of you might have a, a pile of crap because your 10,000 iterations didn't work. But if you can explain mm -hmm. all the ways in which you try, like the learning is tenfold, you know, and not to need failure to, to learn, but the idea there is what mm -hmm. is the process, the learning, what's the story yes. behind where you are in this moment in time. And that right there, that's it. I know there's other standards and some concepts that are a little more black and white, but I think as we're thinking about our classroom approaches, that's, you know, it, it's, it's that design thinking piece. It's that journey. It's that story mm -hmm. of, of how we get to whatever iteration that we're on. Yes. And in, in the class where I could conceive of chat GPT being a tool that we would use collaboratively, uh, in the dissertation seminar course, uh, still at the end of the day, there's this demonstration of learning because that's also an ungraded course. And if you're familiar with the ungraded philosophies, it's that you have a chance to do generative work, uh, not in the large language model generative work, but <laughs> students generate work over time on which they get feedback from me as their professor, but they're not graded on that instance. It's not like you get 14 points for turning in section B of your proposal and then you get, but rather, you know, does this make sense? And then over time, and at the end, we have a 45 minute to one hour conversation about all their work during the uh, preceding 16 weeks. And they themselves assign a grade on what they think their work was worth based upon what we wanted to accomplish together. So now mm -hmm. they've moved from more like not teacher to student, but they moved to almost a colleague who's getting formative feedback on a piece of thought work that they're doing. This is vastly different than us thinking about um, just giving a grade for getting a proposal done. And um, it lets us still use some of the large language models in a way that's helpful to broaden ideas and extend creativity. But at the end, they still have to defend their ideas, just like you said, they right. have to be able to defend their thinking, make uh, the choices, and then give the rationale for those choices. And I think that's always going to be uh, the thing that we're going to have to do as we think about, but you know, in the, I'm fortunate, I get to teach some very creative courses on some interesting topics that I have a lot of latitude on the curriculum and how that gets done. Um, entry level uh, uh, expository writing courses, things like that. I mean, I do, I have some sympathy for my friends in the writing and rhetoric program and the English departments. They're, they're going to be thinking about ways in which they're going to have to, you know, assess differently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some challenges and I don't want to completely downplay that because there are certain courses and, and certain areas in the system where, yeah, it's going to be easier said than done to, to do some stuff. But I think collectively, that's what I like about all of this is like collectively we can come together and be on the same page with these conversations around what does this mean? It doesn't matter if I'm, you know, first level English course or an AP course or um, science or whatever it might be like mm -hmm. we, we we can all come together now as colleagues regardless of discipline and have some conversation on you know what does this mean for for the sake of learning in general obviously there'll be a little minute details that vary yeah. depending on what we do but it can bring everybody to the table to really think about what is school for and what does learning look like? Do we, maybe we need to go back and define what learning is again. Um, we might. And and I just think there are some, some potential positive things to bring people together into a narrative where, you know, mm. right now the system has, has found a good way to kind of pull us apart um, <laughs> without us yeah. always realizing it. <laughs> That's right. And I think that also the, the system and the conversations have leaned too far to the side of talking about how ChatGPT and these other tools can write essays and write written product, when actually at the end, uh, these are these are computers that are programmed by plain English. And so, for instance, 
Um, one of the things that I want my students to be able to do well in my design thinking class is to be able to uh, talk to uh, people they're interviewing and having conversations with in an open-ended manner so that they're able to understand unmet needs, these sort of, you know, the empathetic type of interview. Um, and so that requires some practice. The first couple of rounds, you know, those can be hard. And so I was able to take an example from Ethan Mollick, and if your listeners are not already subscribing to him on Twitter, um, you ought to be, but he uh, has this, the theory of deliberate practice allows someone to practice a skill over and over until they get better at it. And so using the example he posted, I took ChatGPT and asked it to give, uh, to engage in deliberate practice with a learner on how to do empathetic interviews in a design thinking scenario. And so uh, I taught the, the I taught the robot to teach the humans to be human centered, and so uh, and it's and it's interesting because it would you could engage in a in a in a scenario conversation with a a person that is played by ChatGPT, and then it would assess you at the end on how well you did with open ended questions, following up, understanding unmet needs, did you capture things correctly, and then you get to do it again and again and again. So I think. We haven't thought enough about the ways in which ChatGPT and other large language models can, are really just computer programs that can be computer or can be programmed. I mean, really that we haven't thought enough about how ChatGPT and large language models are computer programs that can be programmed in plain English to teach us stuff. And I think also you probably know, Aaron, that these tools work best when you're using them in a discipline or a domain that you know a lot about that if you're yeah. already an expert in because they do hallucinate from time to time, um, even in simple math. And oh, so, yeah. uh, but keeping it close, but still, I think that that's, a, that's an area for exploration for teachers. Yeah, I love it. I think, you know, as you're talking with that, I mean, that's the thing I keep talking about is it's, it's you know, people have said it in some shape or form and I didn't create this and I'm escaping me of which AI person that I follow that said it, but you know, it's tools like ChatGPT are your personal assistants, not your, you know, academic right. professor. And I think there's something to that to be that catalyst and springboard to engage, like you said, the practice to get some thought to work through stuff, you know, but it doesn't mean it's the end all be all by by any means. John, I want to be respectful of your time because we could probably go down this rabbit trail forever. Um, but I know you're a busy man. Yeah. Um, and so I, I want to be be respectful of that. But is there any other thoughts or anything that you want to share that we didn't get to um, as, as we think about wrapping this up, not to put you on the spot. And if you don't, that's okay. But um, I know we've talked about a lot of things, but I wanted to make sure if there was something else that we left out that you really want the listeners to have that uh, you have that space. I'm wondering, it's another conversation, Aaron, but uh, for another time, but the, the findings that my uh, research partner, Ryan Hargrove and I have been looking at after we, taught design thinking to nine undergraduate students face to face this last semester and there we have a small film a short seven minute film about what that experience was like mm. um, i'll get the link to you uh, and you can share that but um what we discovered uh, along the way and we had these reflection and action meetings after each time we taught so every week we would meet and talk for an hour about what we learned about teaching design thinking that week and what the students learned and um Many, many students in the United States of America come out of their public high schools into public colleges and even private schools and universities um, deprogrammed from any ability to be as creative as we'd like them to be. Mm -hmm. And what we've learned about having to unprogram that. Um, and it's a lesson in being uh, empathetic with the students, it's a lesson in being humble, almost being a partner. Uh, and so it'd be fun to talk more about what we're doing in P12 to really get kids ready to enter college in a way that has a more open mind. They're still so point oriented and um, I'm going to be late. Can I turn this in? I'm not sure I can make it. I mean, have you ever, I loved it. We have, you know, the students say the public demonstration of learning is Tuesday at 5 p.m. It's like, well, I think we're not going to be able to turn it in. It's like, no, no, you don't understand. It's like, <laughs> It's a public demonstration of learning. Whatever you know at that point, you demonstrate it. And, and so um, this sort of reprogramming of, of students' minds to really get mm -hmm. around working in a team, not working for points, thinking critically, um, 
we're learning a lot about that and uh and, and we're not the only ones to do that it's not like i'm, I'm saying anything uh, earth shattering here but i would love to talk more about that and where we need to go at p12 and then what do we need to be thinking about when people become freshmen in in colleges and universities yeah we'll consider that done i would love to uh dive into that conversation for sure that would be that would be be really really engaging and uh thought-provoking because you do see it and even in the spaces where we're trying to I don't say break the mold of that a little bit already I mean you you, you see it start to happen you know mm -hmm. even at, at really early ages and I don't think it's it's not intentional but it also happens by design whether we want to admit it or not that's um, right so there's yeah. there, there's some interesting facets to that um yeah. so yeah let's definitely make that happen but John, you know, as uh, people, you, you you've provided us lots of thought nuggets here today, lots of things for us to think about, some new, I know even for me, some new ways of us thinking through some of this stuff, um, these topics of design thinking and AI and just learning in general. People want to follow you and, and follow more of your work and, and your journey and the things that you're you're working on, you know, um, where, where, where where's the best places for them to go? We'll definitely link yeah. it all in the show notes. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at jnash. Somehow I got um, a, a five character <laughs> handle on Twitter uh, and uh, I post there from time to time. Uh, I'm more active on LinkedIn right now. And so you can find me over there also. I think you have John Nash or John B. Nash or Jay Nash. Uh, and uh, then uh, the laboratory on design thinking at the University of Kentucky is at dlab.uky.edu. Uh, and if folks have an interest in thinking about how to take design thinking uh, to the next level to create change in their schools, they can check out my book. It's called Design Thinking in Schools, A Leader's Guide to Collaborating for Improvement. And that's through Harvard Education Press. And you can find that at your popular places. And it is not on Kindle. I was just talking to someone about that. Not so <laughs> by the book. But, um, but that's out there too. And that's got a lot of examples and real examples from uh, school leaders in my state and other, other places. So Awesome. I love it. Oh, I appreciate all the work that you do. I'm glad our paths have crossed and uh, I'm looking Likewise. forward to bringing your voice to more people who are, who are passionate this thinking and, and, and trying to navigate these spaces. So I appreciate you uh, taking time to uh, chat with me today. Yeah, absolutely. Aaron, it was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Chaos. <laughs>